<clears throat> Amen. Thank you, Pastor Marvin. To Owen, appreciate that update. Thank you, Avon, for leading us in prayer. <clears throat> you talked about getting old. It was your birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Avon. Uh, to you, I'm grateful. Yeah, let's give Avon a hand. <clears throat> appreciate your ministry and leading us in prayer this morning. We're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 18. If you had opened up your Bible to Genesis chapter 18, if you don't have a Bible, right underneath your chair in the chair rack, or hopefully one right near you, there'll be one. I'm going to read a lengthy section of Scripture this morning, so you might want to have that in front of you, read along. Uh, however is helpful for you, whatever, sometimes follow along on the screen, or, but sometimes following along on a text in front of you especially when a length these passages read might be helpful for you. We're going to pick up in a minute on verse 17 where James left off last week. The youth did a fantastic job leading us last week. Appreciate their ministry and um, we were blessed by all of their ministry. My son got to host the service. He didn't say anything that wasn't true and I'll, uh, I'll let you go back and listen to what he said if you don't know. So... But one of the things he said uh, was that he had a new cousin. I had a new nephew born last week, and I did last week. His name's Leo Anthony, so Donna Favini, our children's ministry director here, had a son last Saturday night, Leo Anthony. And as I got a chance to meet him this past week for the first time, I'm reminded anytime you meet a little baby that, you know, they don't know anything. They, they, they come out nothing, Right. And they're learning everything around them. But the way they learn is by just observation and interaction, right? I mean, it would be kind of silly for Donna and Eric to put up over Leo's crib a list. All right, you're out now. Here's the list of rules of the house, right? Here's when you sleep. Here's when, like, that would be foolish, obviously. It's laughable. But he is learning, but he learns through interaction. Like he's learning the people around them. He's learning how, you know, to, to make noise and get fed. He's learning how, what the people around him, you know, how they feel about them, right? They protect him. They feed him. They, they take care of him. And he's learning that through that interaction. Here's why I bring that up. Because I just wanted to remind us that as we study the life of this man, Abraham, we are early, early, early on in God's salvation story and interaction with humanity and revealing who he is. The interaction with Abraham is before the law. There's no Ten Commandments yet. There's no Bible. There's no Old Testament. There, there's all that. This is before all of that. No prophets. This is God interacting with one man and this one man learning about who God is through that interaction. And I, I think that's really important as we come to today's uh, account for sure, because we have to remember this is way before the law and the right and the wrong and, and the Ten Commandments, all before all of that. You know, you, you can learn from various different ways of, of, of writing even. And as we come to Genesis, we're reading story and narrative. Uh, but that is also... God's way of communicating to us who he is. Now, you, read, uh, you read an Ikea instruction manual different than you read Tolstoy, right? I hope you do, right? And so you read some of the stuff in the Bible, and some of it's straightforward, like, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Like, all right, I'm clear on that. And then there's other parts where it's more like Tolstoy. It's more narrative. 
and you're learning through God communicating who he is through this interaction, uh, seeing how he interacts with other people. And you're getting insights into humanity and insights into who God is. And so that's what happens when we come to today's uh, account in Genesis chapter 18, or really throughout Genesis. We're reading about God's interaction. And then as we do, we're going to learn some things about God. And so this morning, we're going to learn some things about God, and I want to share those with you. Has anyone ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? Never play two truths and a lie, right? You know how it goes. If you, it's a sip. You know what? If you've never played the game, you already know how it goes. <clears throat> You're going to tell two truths and one lie. <clears throat> and then the people who are around you are going to try and guess which one was the lie. So I'm going to give you three truths and two lies today. <clears throat> and I'm not going to make you guess which ones are the lies. But, but that's where we're going to go. I'm going to give you three truths about God. And then two lies that I think you need to be watching out for, that we need to be watching out for as we're walking with God to be careful in our faith. So uh, let's get there. Here's the first truth. The first truth is this. God hears and responds to cries of injustice. God hears and responds to cries of injustice. Again, remember, pre-law, Abraham's just getting to know God, and we're going to pick it up in verse 17, and if you were here last week when James left off in verse 16, you know there's an interaction that's going on between Abraham and three visitors. It's hard to ascertain, there's a lot of speculation from theologians and scholars about exactly who these three visitors are. Two of them are messengers of God. They're maybe angelic beings, maybe some, some certain prophets that are sent by God, but two of them are messengers of, of God. One of them, Abraham interacts with as if he's talking to the Lord himself. How that happens and, and how that is, we don't know all the logistics, but, but it's a conversation as if Abraham is talking uh, to God himself. And so we pick it up in verse 17 with these three visitors to Abraham. The Lord said, so this one that's interacting as the, the Lord is interacting with Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So this this first truth is that God hears and responds to cries of injustice. Here's what's going on. There's these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, apparently they've, they've reached this level of like evil, specifically their mistreatment of sojourners, of of strangers, of the poor, of those going through there. This passage is all built around hospitality. Abraham shows amazing hospitality to these visitors that come. His nephew Lot, which we're going to see in a few minutes, shows some hospitality to these two visitors that will get when they get to Sodom. But what the people of Sodom don't do is they don't show any hospitality, kindness, justice. In fact, they exploit and abuse people of their own city 
and people that pass through the city. And so some of those people have somehow raised a complaint to God himself. And God's saying, this complaint has come to me, and I'm going to go see. I'm going to send these messengers. Now, God's omniscient, but these two messengers are not. I'm going to send these two messengers, and I'm going to see and verify. It's really a court case. I'm going to verify the complaint against these cities. And if it's true, what he's saying is, I'm going to render judgment. I'm going to render judgment in this case. But here's where I think the first point, this first truth is encouraging to us because it means that the God of heaven hears cries of people when they are treating unjustly. He hears the the cries out of people. He responds to them. And and when these people are mistreated, treated unfairly, that are going through there, he says, I'm going to go verify the complaint and see if it is and then render judgment. God hears and responds to cries of injustice. This is something Abraham just learned about God. There was uh, Sodom, we're often think about that as a sexual sin, but it's beyond that. Ezekiel 16.49 says this about Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. That was the sin of Sodom. You know, we, we think of it, you'll see in a minute that they lacked hospitality for sure in, is a vast understatement. But this idea that they had so much and they exploited and abused and did not care for those in need. And in this way, this sin rose up to God and this injustice rose up to God and he came down to judge them. Second truth, God not only hears and responds to cries of injustice, God hears and responds to our questions about his justice. God hears and responds to our questions about his justice. Now, if you heard, if God said to you, I'm going to go destroy, I got to pick a town I don't think anybody lives in. Um, (laughs) Uh, Pittsfield. Nobody's coming from Pittsfield, right? (laughs) If God said, I'm going to destroy Pittsfield and wipe them off the map, even though you don't know anyone from Pittsfield, maybe, you might have some questions. Here's the first lie. I said, I'm going to give you three truths and a lie. Here's the first lie I want you to be aware of. I think there's a lie that sometimes Christians and followers of Jesus come to believe and that if you are a person of faith, you can't question, you can't bring any questions. You can't question God and you can't ask questions. That if you are really trusted God, if you're really a person of faith, then you don't need to ask any questions. It's just believe, just have faith, just trust. And that's a lie. But I think it's a lie that sometimes exists within the church. That, oh, I can't raise my questions. Or maybe you feel, oh, I can't raise that question. Or I should know better. Or you see people around you that seem so certain and you think, oh, if I was a better follower of Jesus, I would be certain too. Or that's probably a dumb question. Or maybe they're going to think I don't believe. And so this false belief, this false lie that if you're a good Christian, the strongest Christians don't ask any questions. But you have questions. So where are you going to bring them? And if you can't bring your questions to God, then what kind of God is he? If you can't bring your questions to church, then what are we doing here if we say we have the truth? 
I think it's a lie that some people come to believe because you have questions. Sometimes you have really big questions. Like, God, why? You know, what about this war in Ukraine? What about the atrocities that are taking place around the world in various countries? What about all this exploitation abuse? If you're a good God and you're all powerful, how can you stand by and allow this to happen? Like, that's a legitimate question. By the way, it's one that people have wrestled with and, and searched out answers for throughout history, and good, strong thinkers have thought about that. But you have questions. You have huge questions. Sometimes you have Bible questions. You know, what about the three days in the fish? How did that work? What about the ark and the flood and the animals? And like sometimes you have Bible questions, miracles. You have questions about that, and you can ask those questions. Sometimes they're theological questions. Like, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, do I have to be a certain political persuasion? Or, or if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, can I love those who have made different lifestyle choices and choose very different ways than Jesus might teach? Or how do I love them? Those are theological questions. Or sometimes maybe, and I think all of us, just have personal existential questions. Like, does God really love me? Or how does this thing work in my life? Or why do I still struggle with sin? Or why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Like, you have these questions. And I just want to make sure we're clear this morning that it's a lie to think we cannot bring those questions to God. And one of the reasons we know that is because of what happens next in chapter 18. Because Abraham has got some questions. And here's how he interacts with God. So the men, in verse 22, turned, around, turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. So the two men go, these two messengers, and then it's just Abraham and the Lord, and they're standing there. Then Abraham drew near and said, he asked 10 questions. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord... Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. 
I think sometimes what we have here, I, I believe, is a permission to ask God questions. And sometimes I think we think God is like the exasperated parent with the toddler who has just asked 300 questions. Why this? Why that? Why that? And eventually that parent gets to the place and says, because I said so. Right? You just get it. Because I just go play, go away, don't ask me anymore. Because, and sometimes because we get like that, maybe we think God is like that. But here's Abraham asking question after question after question to God, and God allows him, and God listens, and God is not threatened by these questions. We, I, I, I think, sometimes come to believe that if you're a person of faith, you don't have questions. I think it's the exact opposite. I don't think it's a lack of faith to not ask questions. I think it's an act of faith to ask questions. Because when that toddler comes to that parent saying, you know, why does, I don't know, rainbows happen? I don't know. You know, they think they're coming because you might have the answer. That's why I'm coming to you. And when I go to God with my questions, I go because I think, you know what, God, you might have the answer. In, God doesn't get smaller with our questions. He gets bigger with our questions. The bigger the questions we take, the bigger God gets, because I believe you have an answer for those questions. Regarding this, you know, we've had some help along the way with these messages I'm happy to tell you about. We had this gift that the Lord had kind of uh, given to us, a friend that we had met. In fact, Alice, Matthew, uh, Alice Marfleet's, call you Matthews. There's a professor up at Gordon-Conwell named Alice Matthews, and I get that confused. Alice Marfleet's cousin, uh, Marvin and Polly Wilson, um, once in a while have attended here, and uh, the gift is uh, Marvin Wilson has literally written the book on Abraham um, and has studied Abraham his entire life, taught at Brandeis, Barrington College, Gordon College. In fact, this past week, he sat down with our preaching team and talk with us about the life of Abraham and, and what a gift that that was. He even uh, listens to the messages that I, I preach on Abraham, which according to my son Isaac is kind of like Stephen Hawking auditing his high school physics class. And that is a little bit what it's like. Uh, Marvin Wilson has forgotten more about Abraham than I will ever know, and he has not forgotten much. But he says this quote about this part about questioning in Abraham. He says, frequently Christians are told to never rock the boat, thus being forced to settle for easy or pat answers to complex questions. Jews, on the other hand, typically answer questions by asking further questions. Sometimes we settle for not asking questions. But when we see it in the scriptures, and we see it often, I think Marvin's right, we see it in, in, in Abraham's life that they continue to ask questions. They're not afraid to ask questions of God. I was listening to a podcast this week of David Brooks. Some of you may be aware, a New York Times columnist. And, and he's, he's Jewish, and he's a Christian. And he says, you know, one of the things since I came to Christ nine years ago, one of the things that's frustrating is sometimes the lack of continued thinking of Christians. He says, as a Jew, we're constantly asking questions. And we will ask questions and argue and get to an answer and not be afraid. He said, sometimes I sit in church, and it's mediocre thinking, and everyone just wants to do it. Be nice, and no one wants to rock the boat. And then we don't learn. Because I think questions are a gift God has given us. This is how we grow. This is how we learn. This is how we understand. And God is not afraid 
of the questions. So parent, you know, don't be afraid when your child brings those questions to you, you know, and, and maybe you don't have an answer, but you have one answer. You can say, you know what? I don't know, but let's find that out together. Let's work on that. Many times in the scriptures, I think we have permission to be people who bring our questions to God. In the Psalms, the psalmist writes, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Asking God. That's a hard question. That's pretty honest. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? The psalmist says. Jeremiah asked God, why does the way of the wicked prosper? You ever wonder that? The hard question, but Jeremiah is asking God, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do these people that are doing completely opposite of what you would want seem to be getting rich? Ask God. Why do all who are treacherous thrive, Jeremiah goes on. People around Jesus asked him questions. The woman at the well, where do I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? His disciples, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? But I think the greatest permission you and I have to bring our questions to God is from Jesus himself. Because Jesus himself, and Hebrews says that he was tempted as we are. He understands every aspect of what it is for our life on this earth. And Jesus himself came to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, can this cup pass from me? Is there another way? Question. And perhaps the greatest question uh, ever uttered and, and that resounds through the halls of history more than any other is the question from the cross where Jesus says, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there was ever permission to ask God questions, I think that's it. So I say that to say, look, God is not afraid of our questions. And so Abraham brings it and says, look, I, I have questions. Yes, his nephew Lot lives there. And so he's concerned about that. But he also intercedes for everyone else living in that city. Third truth is this. God saves those who are in relationship with him. Third truth is God saves those who are in relationship with him. All right, turn to chapter 19. Settle in. I'm about to read a good chunk of chapter 19. And if you have never heard the story of Sodom, the ending might surprise you. Maybe not. Uh, but we are going to look at chapter 19, and I want to read that for you. God saves those who are in relationship with him as this third truth, and here's what happens. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said... My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. All right, you tracking so far? All right, so these two angels come to Sodom. Lot is there sitting in the city gate. 
which means he probably was pretty interconnected in the city. Sitting in the city gate, he sees these two people. He knows what's going to happen to him because he knows what happens in Sodom. He says, come into my house. Come under my protection. But before they lay down, the men, verse 4, of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old. Now listen to this, the way this is worded, in light of the deal Abraham just made with God. Both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with him than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is, not, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he threw those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That's a lot. In fact, Pastor Brian and I's working title of this message is A Lot to Deal With. 
And it is. There's so much in here. We're not going to unpack it all. Let me just give you a few things that I think I want to observe and are important. Um, this pillar of salt, incidentally, I, I left this off, pillar of salt thing. So, um, side note, really, just what does that look like, right? She probably didn't, like, run and then, like, oh, no, pillar of salt. That's probably not how it went, even though it looks that way in child flanographs at times. The looking back was a longing. In fact, she probably started walking back towards Sodom, and she got caught up in the destruction of the city, which is sulfur and, 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 and this salt in that place to this day from the destruction that was, that was done there. That was a side note. Um, the other thing I think it's important to note, God, this is the only time. Like, we don't see God acting like this regularly. We don't see cities being destroyed like this as the future goes on. This is a unique time. Something's doing. There's been a, every single man, there's been an upwelling of evil in this place such that God is communicating to Abraham. Remember, we're early on, no law, Tolstoy, not Ikea manual. God is communicating who he is and who he is is he takes this very seriously. He didn't, they didn't break a law. There was no law to break yet. But their treatment of other people, God said, that's, this is upwelled too much, that it's not acceptable. And in a sense, he's teaching Abraham about himself, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and his mercy. And he's teaching who he is. And Abraham, that next line of the verse says this, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, verse 27. Verse 28, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So here's Abraham. First of all, he does not know Lot was spared. He's looking from a distance. He gets up in the morning All he sees is smoke coming up from Sodom and Gomorrah. Where does that leave Abraham? He's asked his questions. He's brought his plea. And now he's left to trust in the righteousness and justice of God. He has to trust in the word of God that there were not 10. That God kept his word. That there were not 10 there. That God is God, that he has the right to do whatever he wants, that there's none that are righteous and, and God can judge however he wants, even though I may have questions about it. It's God's righteous judgment that I'll ultimately trust and Abraham will continue to walk with. Some of you, maybe in your life, have had to trust God in this way, not necessarily, obviously, with a city like this, but maybe it's been a loved one that passed on and you don't know where they stood with the Lord. And you hope and you pray that they made a right relationship with God before they left this world and entered eternity, but you don't know. And in that place, you're in a similar place as Abraham with with Lot, that God, I've prayed my prayers, I've asked my questions, I've done what I could, but I ultimately trust your hands as the righteous and just God. And they're in your hands, whoever that might be. And in that way, we're in a similar place as Abraham. Here's the second lie, and we're getting near the end. Here's the second lie that I want you to be careful about. I think there's a lie when, in this passage that we need to be careful about, and that's this, that just because God is good to someone is not a tacit approval of everything they did. Just because God is good and merciful 
gracious, dare I say even blesses someone, is not a tacit approval of everything they do in their life. Here's where I get that from the passage. You saw what Lot did, and you cringed like I cringed. Because no father ought to do that with his daughters, no matter what the cultural, the cultural standard says. He has to protect the guests under his house, but you, as, as a father, and, and he is ultimately responsible to protect any guests that come into his house. But at the expense of his two daughters, many things, here you need to hear this, especially if you're new to the faith following Christ. There are many things the Bible describes that it does not prescribe. Again, Tolstoy, not the Ikea catalog, remember? It's describing events that happened, not saying just because Lot experienced God's goodness that everything he did was right. So we need to make that distinction. Same thing with Abraham. Abraham, when he lies about Sarah and leaves her unprotected in Pharaoh's household to be taken advantage of, or Abraham, when he sleeps with Hagar to to bring about God's promise, the Bible, just because it narrates it and describes it, is not approving of everything, even though Abraham, in many other ways, is, is, is painted in a good light. We have to allow Abraham and Lot, just like us, to grow in sanctification and understanding and walking with God. They're people just like we are. So I think we need to be careful about that in our reading of Scripture, but I also think we need to be careful about that in the way we think about uh, people in our lives, ministry leaders, because sometimes you can think, well, God's blessing that, so they must be living right. God's blessed. God's doing good there, so everything must be good. There's nothing to see here, no reason to question their life. And yet David needed Nathan to come and say, you are a man after God's own heart, but what you're doing right now is wrong. Peter needed Jesus to come and say, yeah, I said I'm going to build my church on you and on this rock and on this confession, but what you did in denying me, you need to be restored. Just because God blessed and is good to someone does not mean everything in their life is right and good. And we've seen a lot of ministries lately that, that, that if you've been paying attention, that we're shocked. What happened? How did that ministry, how did that ministry fall? How did that leader fall? How did we not see it? I think one reason is because we see God doing something through them and they remove anyone in their life who can bring accountability, who can question them, who can call them on it. And they start walking far away from God and they think, and we think that they don't, they're above moral questioning. And none of us are. And so I think we just, there's a lesson in here from Lot and for Abraham that I've seen too many stories lately of ministries or ministry leaders that I had no idea, none of us had any idea what was going on in the background. And why was it allowed to happen? Because somewhere along the line, a board or a person said, ah, there's nothing to see here. Look, God's blessing it. Everything must be fine. That might be what Lot thought. If you had asked Lot, why did you get spared? He'd probably say, well, I wasn't as bad as those guys in Sodom. I was living a little better than them. See, Lot didn't have the benefit of verse 29. Verse 29 says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, 
God remembered Lot. That's not what it says, does it? God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. It wasn't about Lot. It wasn't about how good a guy Lot was. It was about God's faithfulness to Abraham. It was about God's word to Abraham and his promise to him. And Lot had no idea that that's what it was. See, God saves those who are in relationship with him. See, it's not, it's not about your goodness. It's about the goodness of the one or the promise, the covenant of the one that you are related to for Lot's sake. And so with us. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how good I am. It's about my relationship with Christ. Because for the sake of that one, God said, I will spare from destruction all those who put their faith and their trust in him. Not because you've lived a good life. Not because I have. But because of his love for Christ and that new covenant through Jesus just like that covenant with Abraham, God said that if you will put your faith and trust in him, you will be spared. You will be saved. It wasn't about Lot's, what Lot did. It's about his relationship to Abraham. And it's not about what you've done. It's about your relationship to Jesus. We ought to mourn what took place in this passage it should raise questions. God, how does this happen? Why does this happen? But it also brings us, we ought, not make, we ought to make sure we don't miss the lesson of what God is trying to teach us here. God is a God of righteousness and justice. And the only salvation from complete judgment of our evil and our sin is not through our goodness, but through Christ's work. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today. I thank you that you are a God who's big enough for any of our questions. I thank you that you are a God of justice and who cares when injustices are perpetrated, that you hear the prayers and the cries of your people, that even before the law was given, you cared about how people were treating other people. Lord, we're grateful for that. Help us to walk as a people who are just and right in your ways as in Abraham's ways. But Lord, most of all this morning, help us to recognize that it is not our goodness that saves us. It is simply the work of Christ and our trust and our faith in him that saves us. So we thank you, Lord. We make room for Christ, for his work in our lives. Lord, we ask that you continue to reveal this truth to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this song of worship to close our service out together?